Hi, this is Jeanette Creamore, or you may know me as JC. Welcome to Laugh, Learn, Lead, a podcast show that helps project sponsors, project managers, and their teams shape their project success stories. I'll be sharing interviews that bring a different perspective to what project success looks and feels like, as well as unpacking our conversations to provide insights and practical tips. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hi listeners, in this episode I catch up with Mike Stapleton, the Deputy Director General of Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads. He was appointed to the role Deputy Director General of Customer Services, Safety and Regulation in January 2016 and is a champion for cultural diversity. Mike oversees the delivery of safety, regulatory and transactional transport services for the department. His division is critical to Queensland's current and future transport system, managing the state's regulation, marine and road safety, and the frontline services for Queenslanders. He held former positions at Transport and Main Roads as Deputy Director General Infrastructure Management and Delivery and General Manager of Land Transport Safety. Mike has worked in the state public transport sector in finance, general management, infrastructure management, delivery, and transport safety roles for more than 20 years. We talk about using data to measure success, the three things he looks for in status reporting, and how technology is changing the way we live. I'm so privileged, and I hope you get a lot from this time listening to Mike's story. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. I'm really excited to have you on my episode. Um, We've worked together for a while in Queensland Government. I know a little bit about you, but can you share with our listeners how you got into the Deputy Director General's office in Queensland Transport? Oh, Jeanette, that's a, that's a good question um, and one that uh, probably is not easy to answer in many ways. But um, look, I, I, I've been with the department going back, I think I joined, must have been around about 1993, um, working on commercialisation at that stage. Um, worked through, worked with you during the early 2000s. Uh, in about 2005, I moved into uh, the area of road safety registration licensing, um, covering, you know, obviously vehicles and also to some extent boats as well at that point. Uh, also rail safety. Um, so I, I'd spent about a decade working in that role um, and had a lot of um, interesting, um, went through a lot of interesting changes and challenges during that period. Um, and the opportunity came up uh, for me to relieve for a short period of time as um, as uh, Deputy Director General for Infrastructure. The organisation was going through a change. Uh, I'd had an exposure to infrastructure through um, investments in uh, road safety monies into safer road initiatives. Uh, and also there was a safety package at that time that came up for the Bruce Highway, uh, which some of my people are heavily involved in. Um, at that time, uh, the Director General asked me to go over and relieve for a couple of months in that role while he sorted out um, direction for the future. And um, during that time, I ended up staying in the role for what was at that point about two years. I did get appointed to the role as Deputy Director General. Um, and subsequently, I um, moved back across into uh, customer service, safety and regulation when the DDG here uh, was promoted into the Department of Premiers and Cabinet. Um, Neil said to me, look, um, I'd like to go back mainly because uh, we were needing someone who had a fairly deep um, background in policy 
uh, and felt that I was the right person to move back there and take on that role. Uh, things had stabilised in infrastructure and um, it was time to move back. So I've been back in this role now for about uh, three years. Um, and uh, during that time, I've had some time relieving uh, the Director General in his position for about five, six month period when he was at Queensland Rail, uh, resolving issues around their services for a period of time about two years ago. So it's been an interesting journey. Uh, I've had a lot of really interesting experiences. Uh, can honestly say it's not boring. Uh, definitely not boring. Yeah, I can just imagine a day in your office. Um, I can remember when we worked together, you would get these unbelievably weird phone calls about a policy change potential or that we needed yeah. to make something happen and thought that we could flick on a switch and it would just yeah. happen. So um, those, those phone calls still come, Jeanette. Uh, it's left me gun shy on scope creep. It'd be what I'd call it. Uh, I, uh, I, um, very few people come to me from below suggesting a scope change on a project. Uh, as I, uh, as I have uh, learnt over the years, that those can you make this small change turns into a big problem. Uh, and if you don't, particularly if you don't have a decent plan around what it is you're trying to do, which is often, often the nature of what's expected, because we live in an environment. Um, where people uh, want instantaneous uh, gratification, whatever it may be. Social media has really changed the way government functions and expectations around um, how things respond or how we respond uh, to what may be happening, particularly in the media uh, or even in the community in general, um, uh, is that we need a quick response and quite often that's not the right answer it's more a matter of um, slow down let's see what really is the issue and let's go in there and resolve the problem but the time frames for that are quite are quite lengthy uh, and uh, that, that is a challenge how do you how do you manage the capacity and capabilities of your organization when you're living in a 24-7 media cycle yeah that would and I think now that I'm actually not in government as much I look back and grateful for all the lessons I had about how to operate within a legislative framework. And although it might be hard to navigate around sometimes, it actually is there to protect your investment. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think that's a good point you make because, um, and this probably highlights the importance of the parliamentary system. Uh, a lot of people make jokes about the politicians and parliaments, etc. but in actual fact, uh, if anything, what I've found, particularly in the last uh, decade, has been things actually run far more effectively now than they probably ever have in many ways in terms of scrutiny of legislation, why are we doing things. Uh, the politicians, particularly the parliamentary committees, are far more sophisticated in their questioning, ask good questions uh, and really test out why we need to change. Um, they, uh, they've actually developed quite significant skills in, in that. Uh, we move, we, we do need time to move and change things. It does take longer, but generally speaking, uh, I think we get better results than might have been the case, say, 20 years ago. Mike, we've been involved in some interesting projects. The one that comes to mind for me was the services booking system. I can remember coming back from leave and got and I got asked to go and yeah. have a chat to the executive director about a project that needed a little bit of a rescue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, that was a highlight and a success for us. 
As, as a matter of fact, Jeanette, you'll be pleased to know that someone came and saw me the other day and said, can we have a talk about replacing a services booking system? And I said, take a chair, <laughs> grab a couple of Panadol and sit down. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, uh, it, you'll, you'll be pleased to know that that particular project, that system has withstood the test of time, has actually done its, um, done the job we wanted it to. But it probably, I'd say the services booking system was one of those um, projects that really uh, drove home um, a number of lessons for me. And there have been a few projects that fall in that category, but that's probably the first one that I can think of that really highlighted the need to talk to your customers, get a clear understanding of what they're doing, communications, getting them right and understanding the scope of your project and also breaking projects breaking projects down into deliverable components. So I think when you go back and the rescue job you did really unpacked a lot of those issues mm. um, and that, uh, that, that, that's a lesson that stayed with me uh, really right through the last, uh, what is it now? It's got to be, oh, I don't even want to say, Jeanette, because it might give away our ages, but it's, uh, it's, it's been a while, yeah. Oh, it would have to be 15 years. I didn't want to say that, Jeanette. Yeah. Yes, it is, it is an actual fact you're right. It is 15 years to be precise. Oh, well, that's good that the investment lasted that long. So, Yeah. No, it, it, it's actually done a great job, yes. Yeah. So everything that you've been involved in, everything from licence plates and, you know, um, yeah, land yeah. transport and stuff, was there a, high, a project particularly that you went, yes, that was a success because? Oh look, there's been quite a it's been quite a number of projects, and of course, bearing in mind that uh, not all my projects have necessarily had an IT component. Um, I, um, if I look back, uh, commercialisation. I go through this this things that have come out. I was involved in the commercialisation project when I got here uh, to transport and main roads, um, and we we actually road tech was created out of that one. And bearing, I was just part of a team working on these. We had a quite a large team working across commercialisation and road reform in the department. And uh, if you look at institutions that have actually withstood the, the test of time, Road Tech, which is our internal construction arm for the department, uh, has been a fairly big success. So I was always really quite happy to be involved with that. Uh, there were all the revenue projects uh, that you and I worked on, actually, uh, that happened in the early 2000s uh, that actually brought some sense and structure to the way we charge for registration and licensing services uh, in the department because we were uh, we probably were losing money in a number of areas. At least we, we got to a point where we were, we were at least making our services pay for themselves, uh, which, um, you know, I'm not talking in terms of how we charged and recovered for the basic services we delivered. Uh, you mentioned the, the, uh, the uh, booking system. There was also, when I got into... Um, uh, road safety, there were two projects uh, that were actually happening at the time. One was Young Drivers um, and uh, that related to uh, changing the whole way we train, you know, formally changing the whole way we train our young drivers uh, and we introduced logbooks as part of that process uh, and time-based because we had a problem with, um, with the fact that we had very high fatality rates and serious injury rates for young drivers once they were actually driving on their own when they got their licence uh, and the intention was to actually ensure they got more exposure on the road 
particularly driving with um, uh, driver trainers or, more importantly, their parents, uh, what we understood was the more time they had practising under supervision, the lower the rate of injury and fatality would be in the future. So that was one project. And I can honestly say, that looking back now, uh, we have seen the reductions in injury and fatals um, that, um, that actually um, uh, compared to where we were a decade ago. So that's been great to actually see that. That was a fantastic project, but it was a complex project because it involved a lot of uh, policy um, in relation to changing it and also getting the community across the line and accepting it. Uh, and on the other front, uh, there was a significant change to trails, as you would appreciate, our, our registration licensing system, which was quite complex and quite demanding and required the organisation to work effectively and co cooperatively across divisions which is something that always, for most organisations, that is a problem. But we had to do that effectively to make that particular project work. Um, the, um, the other one uh, was actually our smart licence project, uh, which actually took quite a few years. I had an involvement with that. Uh, it was uh, delivered by ITB, Information Technology Branch, uh, and that project went through a few iterations. We had a lot of teething problems with it. But in the end, um, and that also resulted in the introduction of biometric imaging uh, for our licences. Um, in the end, uh, we rolled it out in 2009 and was highly successful. And we've now been through a full decade of recruitment. Uh, so we've been through two cycles, two licensing cycles, because we have five-year licences, and it has performed really, really well. And we're just in the process now. We're out to market on a project looking at uh, our photographic equipment for the future, what we need to do. And uh, I'll look at those two projects. They both withstood the test of time. And if they hadn't been delivered well, uh, they would have been massive problems for us. But uh, they were two big successes as well. Uh, and then I, I, I've actually had some involvement in infrastructure projects in the recent years. So... Um, a lot, a lot of involvement in um, the recent Bruce Highway safety package. There were initiatives such as wide centre line treatment. Uh, we had a problem with the Bruce Highway where we had a fatality rate uh, bordering about 70 fatals per year. Uh, we've, we've introduced quite a number of infrastructure treatments on that road, um, barriers, wide centre line treatments, audio tactile markings, widening of the road, uh, some new infrastructure, and um, we're now seeing fatality rates down as low as 20 to 30. So there's been significant improvements there. Um, that's probably how we measure our projects. I, I think that's one of the things I've loved about working for transport and main roads is that it's successful projects. You can see the end result. Uh, and uh, it's so pleasing to be able to look back and say, hey, I was actually part of that. Uh, so, yeah, the, it's uh, it's... It is one of the strengths of this organisation. I know you know that from having worked here, uh, but it does make it easy uh, to motivate people, to motivate your staff when they can feel like they're part of something that's successful. Yeah, so what I picked up in a lot of that is community consultation is yeah. key in some of that, getting them to understand why the change has to happen. Yeah, but then it is. But then your benefits realisation is the data that says we've been effective with this strategy because we've now got less death and we've got a safer road. 
And we've got the before and after data. You're quite right. Um, if I go back to um, the Young Driver Project, which uh, we ran community forums all over Queensland. We had uh, town hall meetings. We had a minister, Paul Lucas was our minister at the time, um, who uh, and he came, he actually came, and I think he would have um, hosted 90% of the meetings. And So that's a fantastic engagement to get out of your minister. Uh, and he took questions. He was more than happy to answer questions and he didn't care if they were friendly questions or hostile questions and there were plenty of hostile questions. So uh, he was very engaged and very committed. Um, I think that type of political support, um, you know, helps when you're actually trying to deliver quite a significant change that's not only just a system change but a significant social change also for the, for the community. So. That, that helped and, and good staff backing that up makes a big difference as well. Yeah. I, I can remember the, the – I was actually – I think I might have been, been working in the data yeah. know, performance team at the time and our team were getting the data for you to validate the business case. Yes. At that time. So, yeah, good memories. If anything, data's – your point about data is well taken because, if anything, we've been uh, investing more and more in data – uh, particularly in the last two years, uh, uplifting our skill capability and looking at how we actually capture, collect and store our data and use it. So um, it's it's been a, a big focus for us as an organisation. So, Mike, you have a lot on your plate and you need to have information presented to you that you can make quick decision and ask questions. So when you're monitoring your program of work in your division, Hmm. What are probably three things that you look for in the status reports when your general managers come to you? What are the, some of yeah. the things that you look for to go, oh, are we on track or this is looking great? Yeah, look, and I was thinking about uh, this is a good question because for me at the moment I'm, um, I'm chair of the Information Systems Committee for the department at the moment as well as my division, as chair for my division also. So the bulk of the bulk of the change change in ICT projects for the department are actually going through me and we've got pages of things that are happening. Um, what what I, I look for invariably, at, because, mainly because of where I am, I'm, I'm not a frontline manager, um, I don't run a branch, uh, I tend to have quite significantly senior people who report to me. So what I try not to do is, is actually do their jobs. Uh, they're there for that. We've got project boards in place for all the major projects just to make sure they're on track. Uh, so the things that I tend to look at are risk for me. Uh, what are the risks and what ha- and how are we mitigating those risks? Uh, have we got strategies in place for that? Uh, and invariably, um, if you don't, you'll find you'll find a problem with the project in the other two areas that are of interest to me. One is how you're going against your project time, your project plan, and how you're going against dollars. And uh, what does worry me at times, Jeanette, the first I often know about a problem in a project at my level is when I'm seeing blowout in either time or dollars uh, because people, people, um, the project managers... Uh, in particular, seem to suffer. Some of them seem to suffer what I call an optimism bias. Uh, I'll solve this and get on with it and we'll, we'll get back on track. And I very rarely find that is the case. So they are the types of things I look for. So that's 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 from my level, Jeanette. I, 
quite often uh, I'll ask some questions uh, around those factors and other things will become apparent. Uh, and that's that for me uh, are the ones that allow me to, de- to delve deeper. Uh, if I have um, concerns, if I can't get appropriate answers, then I'll get a presentation from project execs at the next uh, committee meeting. We, we meet monthly. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll bring in the uh, project, uh, the project um, management and go through the project with them and unpack what's happening. Yeah. Two things I really love there is that, one, you don't do other people's roles. You let them do what they do best. And, yeah. And you've definitely shown me when I was working with you that leadership is about that. It's about ensuring that you provide them the environment for them to be effective. That's precisely right. Um, you, you know, uh, and, and you know, it's been it's it's a good point you make that um, I, I, I have actually found it more difficult doing this role than any other, um, mainly because as a general manager, I had control of the branch, uh, which would have been called a division in the old structure, um, and therefore I had total control of the budget, the staff, etc. Uh, for me, at this level, I'm a step back and I can't have that hands-on control uh, unless I can identify a problem that really needs me to intervene. My desire is not to do that. Uh, I have to tell you that invariably I, I, I find situations where I do need to do it. But uh, I do talk to my general managers and I found I've got a pretty good team of general managers uh, and they will act and they will go and find out what's happening and try to remediate as quickly as they can when problems emerge. Um, but it comes back to me, what I often find too, as I mentioned before, is an optimism bias, uh, particularly amongst project managers. And that's one of the things that, that does worry me uh, about a lot of projects that w- it's okay, we can get back on track. Uh, and that's that's something that... Um, that um, set the alarm bells for me. Yeah, and that was the second one. I love that because one of the things that I'm helping project managers now understand is that no surprises, like be vulnerable, escalate early and say, I think we might be in trouble. This is what I'm thinking of doing to get us back on track. Are you okay with that? You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be sacked. No, that's, that's exactly right, yeah. Your leadership team want to know. They just don't like surprises. So I'm working really hard in my programs and my you know, training pro, um, workshops to say to them, it's okay to be vulnerable. So, so it's a good, again, another good point you're making here because um, uh, my job really is to knock, as you indicated before, to knock down those barriers that may be in their way. If I don't know what barriers are in their way, I can't knock them down and clear the way for them. It's the same issue that the general managers have. Um, and uh, I suppose for me, this didn't become, I wasn't so clear about how big an issue this might be until I started seeing how we historically had performed as a department uh, against our um, budgets, uh, for particularly for ICT projects. And we were finding that we were, you know, managing to spend um, 60, say around 60% of budget in the, in the year, which to me was really quite alarming uh, because it indicated there were real problems. And I'm going back now a couple of years 
to when I started chairing the committee. I want to assure you that that's not the case anymore. Uh, in actual fact, uh, we'll come in pretty close to budget this year as we did last year. So we're actually uh, performing quite well in terms of our project delivery. That's not to say that I haven't got problems with some projects. I do. Uh, but we are working through those and, uh, and dealing with them. Uh, overall, however, if you look at the performance indicators, they, they look reasonably good. Mm. Mm. And I, I know you don't get directly involved in recruitment of your program and project managers. Yeah. But you talked about, you know, how do we have confidence that we're actually recruiting the right person for the right role? What's some of the things that... Yeah, the, this is the this is the question that keeps me awake at night, Jeanette. And I, I, the reason why um, uh, I, I do get worried about this is that um, it, it hadn't it hadn't been so apparent to me until I started working on the construction side of the business and um, be, became really aware of how our um, our infrastructure people go about projects. Um, you know, they, they scope out a project. Uh, they're very, very precise. And admittedly, it's, you know, if you're going to build a bridge, you're going to build a bridge. Um, scope it out, plan it out, um, fund it, um, then they go and execute. Um, what I found was that uh, we had no shortage of really good project managers, well-trained young engineers, um, who'd come through the system, be trained quite carefully by the organisation uh, to a level where I could be confident that uh, and, and perform consistently uh, to a level I could be confident that the project was being delivered. And then I started looking at what had been happening back on the other side of the organisation where we didn't have that um, established skill-based and training regime uh, and we tended to use a lot more contractors because we couldn't pay enough. And it made me appreciate how different the environments were and how the infrastructure engineering world um, is far more matured, matured and evolved. And it was pointed out to me by some old engineers. They said, oh, look, you know, you realise it hasn't always been this way. And if you go back in history, um, engineering uh, wasn't, as precise a science necessarily in terms of how we train our engineers and put it for the system. I think what we're faced with in the world, in the less, the less infrastructure world, um, is that we're still coming to grips with uh, the post, what I call the post uh, 1960s, 70s periods when computing really started happening and organisational design and work design changed. Uh, and we don't have as precise uh, a skill path, skills development path as we do. I don't know if we ever will, uh, and that's because of the variety of, uh, of capabilities that, that, that come in there. I, I hope we do, but I find it's very, very challenging to actually uh, look at a person's quals and uh, experiences in particular. And I, I say experiences because a lot of this is about practical training and getting the right practical training and skill sets so that you can actually manage a project. Um, you just don't have that same certainty that they do with engineering qualifications, uh, and we need to get there. Um, so it's, um, I, th I think it is a significant challenge. It's one that does worry me a lot because there's a lot of, um, to me, there's a lot of guesswork and luck in identifying someone from outside organisations who you think 
uh, will be good. And we rely very much on organisations that um, that recruit, uh, particularly contractors, in helping us to identify those people. So if you find a good recruitment agency that can help you find uh, good quality project uh, managers and directors, uh, you don't let them go. They're, they're, they're like gold. Yeah. So it's a, it is a problem, uh, and I don't know the answer. Um, I definitely, in terms of things I look for, um, good communication skills, good planning capability, um, really calm uh, and capable of dealing with uh, the stresses of, of, of working in a project, uh, and that necess- doesn't necessarily come out in an interview sometimes. No, and we've got to know how to have a bit of fun every now and again. Well, I think that's important, as you and I both know. I mean, you know, you're at work uh, 10 hours a day. I don't know. It, it, it seems more like 12 to me at times. But um, uh, if, you, if you don't enjoy your work, you don't enjoy the people you uh, are working with, uh, then uh, life's going to be pretty boring uh, and uh, pretty unrewarding. Mm, absolutely. So, Mike, we talked a little bit about your projects that, you were involved in in the past. Yeah. What's the department investing in now and its technology to improve the Queen, Queensland's way of living? Um, I was up in Brisbane last year. Yeah. Just noticed some little things and I went, oh, that's an incentive I bet you that the Queensland government funded. So what's something that your department is investing in at the moment? Well, we're investing in a number of areas. I mean, I mentioned before the Safer Roads projects. We, we've um, we've actually been quite successful in getting our um, our road toll down uh, over the last decade by investing uh, speed camera money in particular um, back into the road network uh, and actually making it safer to travel around. And um, also by doing that, fewer crashes, less congestion, uh, less disruption to travel. So uh, that that that's one way we're doing it, and that that investment's been very very um, very successful in terms of helping us to get uh, a safer road network to to drive on. Uh, there are a couple of investments I did want to mention in particular that we're making right now that people probably aren't aware of. Uh, one is a project called Cavi, which is connected uh, and autonomous vehicles. Uh, Queensland's um, investing quite a deal of money in actually um, getting ready for the next generation of cars. Uh, and I note the press talks about um, talks about autonomous vehicles as if they will happen tomorrow, but I can assure you they will happen, but not tomorrow. Uh, there's a long way to go, uh, particularly with artificial intelligence for vehicles and decision-making. Um, you, you could imagine uh, that there is no more complex driving environment than a driving environment where humans are operating. Uh, We have an amazing ability to make uh, random decisions and execute them on road, uh, which which is a bit of a driver for the way way things work out. Uh, But uh, I can say that the technology that we're seeing coming through is going to dramatically change the way um, we travel on road. Uh, it's going to dramatically change the need for us to be in control of vehicles over a period of time. Um, and um, being part of that and seeing it is a big, um, is a big fantastic uh, opportunity that get, gets me out of bed in the mornings. Uh, we're, we're actually in the process of, uh, of actually working with one of the car manufacturers, I won't mention which one, uh, to build an autonomous vehicle to bring back here to Queensland. So 
use it on our on-road trials that will be happening in Ipswich uh, starting later this year. The, the probably the, the autonomous vehicle is probably the one the press gets excited about. I get more excited about the connected vehicle technology with the ability of the infrastructure and other vehicles to talk to each other and pass messages to drivers about what's happening up ahead or warn them about pedestrians crossing roads uh, on crossings up ahead or, you know, uh, crashes that may have occurred so that you're not just relying on what you see but you get some forward warning of what's happening. Um, the, there are a number of technologies that uh, are available in cars today that are precursors to a lot of what I'm talking about. One is um, autonomous braking, which is the ability of your vehicle to see a, see a, um, a obstacle ahead, be it a pedestrian or another vehicle, and for whatever reason, if you don't see it, it will take over and brake, uh, which is um, something I experienced for the first time when I was in Sweden about a decade ago uh, and uh, I was at uh, Volvo and um, was fortunate enough to drive in their test track and uh, allow the car to um, brake as I drove towards a dummy. Uh, it, it's, it's hard. It was actually hard to drive at speed at anything for fear of um, injuring the car, up, I suppose. But um, the, uh, the, the technology works really, really well. And I think that, in itself, just that one technology could dramatically change what happens on our roads uh, virtually overnight. But that's now starting to deploy. A lot of cars available in the fleet now have that. Uh, another one's lane departure technology, which similarly keeps you in line. Uh, that, the reason why these things are becoming more important is because of another amazing technological advance that's actually taken Australia by storm uh, called, the, uh, called the iPhone. Uh, which, which uh, has really become a very big part of our lives, uh, but is also a source of great distraction to drivers. Um, and uh, there's no doubt we're definitely seeing a higher level of um, you know, rear-end crashes in Australia uh, that can be attributed to uh, driver distraction, be it either talking on a phone, iPhone, or texting, or looking up something on a phone because um, it's, it's become one of the great addictions for our community, uh, the need to be connected 24-7. Um, that's another project we have going at the moment where we're actually working with uh, across the ecosystem, um, the, um, the um, manufacturers, the telecommunication companies, police, um, all sorts of parties, to try and come up with a better way of uh, responding to what is, to some extent, a bit of an epidemic that's uh, that's now hit us. Wow! Just yeah, just I miss I miss this space. I miss the strategy work that you do because when you tell a story about things that are happening, um, I feel as if I'm part of it, and um, I really do miss that. So. Um, yeah, look, it, 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 look it's, it, it gets me out of bed in the mornings, Jeanette. It's an amazing world. Um, it's a wonderful world. I, and, and the mobile phones are just part of us now. I, I, I'm struggling to remember when I didn't have one, uh, when I didn't have a uh, – and I've got a Samsung, only because everyone else has got an iPhone. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, the way that, – that's, that's an office – uh, that I carry with me, literally, 
And if someone had told me 15 years ago that that was going to be available, I probably would have shot them, um, knowing the truth, because it's become very much part of the, who we are. Um, but I also know that it's an addiction and it's almost impossible for some people to resist. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I could keep talking for you forever, but I know um, you've got a busy office and I want to thank you for today. In closing, though, um, how does Mike relax when he is 10, 12 hours a day and he has his phone that goes off weird hours of the night? How do you relax? Oh, Jeanette. Oh, look, I, I think the, the way the way I relax is um, I tend to go to the gym. When I go home, I go to the gym. I try to go a couple of times a week. Uh, I'm very fortunate in that um, I have no children at home, I think. Um, I, I often say to myself, I don't know how I could do this job and raise a family at the same time. So I, I live in admiration of those of my colleagues that um, that have young families and are trying to juggle them because I, 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 would, I find it a genuine challenge. Um, they're long days. I tend to go home. I don't generally don't work at night. Uh, and uh, if I go back a decade or so, or so uh, I did work at night. So I quite consciously turn off and the world doesn't stop. Uh, and I don't work as much on weekends as I used to, Jeanette. Mm. Um, and I think a uh, little bit of work I do on weekends, I generally respond to things on phone. Whereas um, if you went back a decade ago, my working week probably started about 11 uh, a.m. on Sunday and I'd work through till about 6 p.m. on Sunday night. Um, I don't do that anymore. Um, so, you know, in many ways, uh, the phone for all its pain has made my working life a lot easier and I find that I'm probably getting more time away. So gardening, uh, I do a lot of walking. Uh, there's other things I like to do. I love going shopping, Jeanette. That's, I know it's a terrible thing to say, but uh, I, love, I love shopping. I love farmers markets and doing those sorts of things. And uh, the other thing I've been doing is um, I've moved closer back to home where I grew up and I'm spending more time with my mother as well. Uh, so it's, it's nice to probably reconnect with her because I've lived a long way away from her for a long time. So that's been good. Geez, there's some lessons in there for some um, executives about um, looking after yourself. And so, yeah, I'll, I might reflect on that in another episode. But um. Yeah, okay. Okay, it's true, it's true but you can't, you can't um, the pace that I used to set is not the pace that I set now. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think as we get older, I think we have those lessons, but it's taken us a while to realise that uh, we can still do the same amount but smarter. Uh, the the only other thing I'd say to you, Jeanette, that doesn't. I don't think that applies necessarily to CEOs. Having having been director general for transport and main roads for six months, uh, I, I literally did live and work at twenty four seven. It was it was like that. But the demand on CEOs. I've got nothing but respect for the CEOs of government departments and businesses uh, because I think uh, they work. Uh, incredibly hard, incredible, under incredibly difficult circumstances, very demanding circumstances um, in a way that uh, all the other employees of the department probably don't appreciate. So uh, I, I can tell you that uh, having done that job for that period made me even more 
uh, committed to making sure I found time for myself in this job. Wise words. Well, thank you so much, Mike, and um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeanette. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a few ideas to take action. I would love for you to rate and review the show. I too need feedback to learn. Cheers for now. Remember, a day without laughter is a day wasted. 